How many hours and years of our lives do we spend on work? For nearly all of us, we spend 30 plus years and one third of our days in our vocation. More time, perhaps, than we spend at rest or at play. But this isn't a problem. Why? Because work is good. Work needs to be integrated deeply into our lives and must be in line with our most important goals and values. And if it is, we have a far more complete and fulfilling life experience. Welcome to the How People Work podcast, where we explore the intersection of how humans think and act and how they apply themselves to their work. When you understand both of these things, you'll be equipped to be insightful, compassionate, and compelling leaders. Welcome back to How People Work, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we have Cassandra Rose joining hello, us hello. again as a guest on the podcast. So I am hosting. Jordan is not here today, uh, but we are very excited to have Cassandra back with us to continue the conversation that we started last week uh, around people and particularly the idea of well-being, which we touched on just a had mm -hmm. last time we got up to some other interesting topics, but um, there's some really interesting research that's come out of this Deloitte study um, that we mentioned, and we'll post it in the show notes for those who are interested. Um, but that's something that I think will be really interesting to delve into today, especially given Cassandra's experience in the benefit space, well-being, working at uh, both small and large organizations. And so I'm really excited to jump into this today. So. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again for having me on the show. For the people who didn't hear it the first time around, I am the head of people here at Fringe and have about 20 years of HR experience. And I've worked in not just the benefit space, but also in corporate immigration and recruiting and learning development and HR systems. And I'm really proud to be a practitioner of the HR discipline. And what I think is so fascinating about the well-being study is that in the organizations that I worked at that were Fortune 100 and, you know, were well-resourced, well-being was always a top item to be discussed. And I think that we are now realizing it's not just companies who have the privilege of having dedicated people. Like, well-being has to be the way that you think about work, whether you're the CEO or, you know, a first-time employee. Yeah. And that's a big change um, that's taken place more recently. And I don't know if I've shared this yet, but um, my role within Fringe more recently has been within our innovation team. Mm -hmm. And so I've been conducting some research recently with um, HR individuals. We did a big survey where we gathered some data and then uh, myself and some other folks on my team have been interviewing uh, HR executives and talking about some of these topics. And I was actually really surprised. One of the things that came out of this research that we did um, was uh, one of the questions that we asked was, what are the metrics that are most important within the HR function? And so, you know, we had all sorts of people from all sorts of different HR roles um, that we asked them to rank order out of about 10 different metrics, what were the top five uh, for them? And the metric that was most consistently numerically kind of rated in the top five was well-being. Mm. And I was really surprised by that because you know, normally you hear, you know, 
attract and retain, mm-hmm. you know, right? Recruiting metrics, retention metrics. Obviously, those are very important to um, how the business operates and the efficiency of the business. But well-being, I, I was a little surprised, honestly, to see that surface, you know, so high as a metric. Because one of the things to me that I think is interesting is I'm not sure that there's a really consistent definition of what well-being means and how companies or HR practitioners think about that. So I'm curious, even your reaction to, you know, well-being having been elevated so high in that research that we did. Yeah, I love what you said about having a shared understanding, a definition around it, because well-being can be the soft and squishy thing at one organization Mm -hmm. where it could be hard facts and and heavy investment at another organization. And so when I think about the spectrum of well-being, it goes from something as basic as, you know, we provide benefits to our employees and, you know, the major things, the core things, the medical benefits, dental vision, all the way to how can I provide for you um, from a mental health standpoint, from a financial health standpoint, even sometimes from a community health standpoint, and meaning how do we create um, engaging spaces for you to be able to collaborate with your coworkers, be mentored, be sponsored um, at at the organization. So I think when we th- we say, well, what is a definition of well being? It really should be more comprehensive than just physical health. Right. And as long as we're having a conversation that go that includes that, but then goes past that, I feel like we're in the right space. Yeah. Well, and I think what's really interesting is I've delved into this myself in recent months. Um, It's really fascinating that, you know, in the work setting or the business setting, you know, there really doesn't seem to be a consistent definition. I mean, I've talked to literally thousands of, you know, HR leaders Mm -hmm. and HR executives. And if you ask any one person, you know, what basically happens is well-being means different things to different people. But when you get into the space of psychology, which I think is important because we're talking about how people work, which is the name of the podcast here, um, it's actually much more scientific. Um, And so sometimes what happens is when we're in the business setting, we say, well, these, you know, qualitative, these soft things, you know, they're they're nice to haves. They're not need to haves, right? That's the kind of a common language that's used. And what's really meant by that is, well, nice to haves don't really actually matter when it comes down right. to it, right? Because nice to haves are just, you know, fluffy stuff. It doesn't actually impact the business outcomes in a material way. And I think what's actually really fascinating by that is as I've delved into this research, that it couldn't be it couldn't be further from the truth, mm-hmm. right? Um, that actually the ways in which we think about these qualitative measures are actually highly scientific from a psychological standpoint. These self-evaluated uh, qualitative measures of satisfaction and happiness and a sense of well-being um, are actually very material when it comes to an employee's self-reported sense of these things, how that directly impacts their productivity, their happiness, uh, their ability to be creative in their work, all of these things that have uh, very important, significant mm-hmm. business outcomes that I think you can begin to connect. And so I think it's a really fascinating thing as we talk about you know, the idea of well-being and what is a good definition? How do we bring maybe some of these things into the business context that haven't been part of the conversation before? Yeah. And if you think about the way that a lot of younger workers, and I don't mean necessarily Um, just in age, but the amount of time that they spent in the workforce, think about purpose. They want to be Mm purpose-driven at work, right? That is essential to their well-being. And the way that we 
spend time in our work, whether it's the hours that you think about, the weeks, the years of it, that's a way that you're contributing to society more significantly than almost any other thing that you do in this life. And so if we're thinking about what gives people purpose and how does that show up for them, I think that's an aspect of well-being as well. Because if yeah. you feel purpose-driven, you know, that can actually help you reframe how you think about um, how you're contributing, how you're taking care of yourself, how you're investing um, in the things that you're doing at work and in your personal life, which I love what you say is that's a blend, right? Like work isn't right. this thing that I just turn off, I go home and I completely forget the address of where I've just come <laughs> from for those who still go into an office, but it's an ability for me to contribute to society, contribute to something that makes me passionate and excited and use skills that I just naturally have and want to uh, further condition. Um and then go take those opportunities to go do other things for myself. So I think for me, what well-being could be showing up for me as well as the employees that I attend to is really just making sure that I'm, again, giving a breadth of resources that allows each person to fulfill what they need to get their purpose. Yeah, so Jordan and I have talked about this in previous episodes, and I'm curious how, what you think about it. You know, how can employees or just people in general go about thinking about this question of purpose, because I do think it's something that comes up. And I think sometimes we kind of gloss over it really quickly and we're mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, totally. Like everyone should have a sense of purpose, but uh, I think we really have to kind of peel back the layers on that. And so, you know, maybe in your own personal experience or with people that you've worked with, like how do you see the sense of purpose coming to life and what people do day to day? Well, first I want to clarify what I believe it's not. Purpose doesn't necessarily equate to happiness. And for some reason, we've connected those two things. And if I'm not happy at work, then I'm not purpose-filled at work. And I'm not saying that you should be unhappy <laughs> and okay with that either. Like if bad things are happening in your work environment, call them out. Um, make it better, not just for yourself, but for people around you. But when I think about purpose, I think about what does it even mean to work? And a good example of that is if you go to the gym and work out for an hour, but you never break a sweat. Scientifically, it's as though you didn't work out. You're not having the activity to produce sweat that can actually result in a change in your body. Mm -hmm. You've done things, but you haven't actually done work. You right. haven't worked out, right? And so when I think about purpose, purpose means that I have a vision of something that I want to achieve. I want to change the world. I yeah. want to you know, sell this widget. I want to bring something to the world that does not yet exist. Um, and so there are going to be hard days in that. There are going to be great days in that. Mm -hmm. There are going to be middling days where I'm like, I did a bunch of stuff, but yeah. I don't know if it actually was it in line with meaningful yeah. to like my OKRs if you do that thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when you can actually channel people into believing that your purpose can be here every day. And let's find a way in the work that you're, you know, that you apply for in the job description that you have. Let's see how your purpose can be fulfilled. Yeah. That to me is the magic versus going, how can I make sure you're always happy? Yeah. In every day of what you do. I don't yeah. think there's any point in life, whether you're high school or someone who's in retirement, where they're like, I feel happiness through and through every day. Right. But I think you can get satisfaction in the challenge and that your happiness is an end result 
of always focusing on your purpose. Yeah, and so you probably don't know this, but Jordan and I, in uh, maybe two or three episodes prior to this one, talked about these different kinds of happiness and fulfillment. And so mm -hmm. uh, what you're describing is what we would consider to be, you know, hedonism essentially is not really happiness that fulfills or sustains. And so there is a kind of happiness that is actually rooted in this sense of purpose and meaning. And I yep. think the analogy of exercise is a good one because uh, exercise at its best is uncomfortable. It is. Right. Even mm -hmm. painful because literally what's happening when you get stronger is you exercise to the point of exertion that your muscles tear and then they rebuild themselves and they're stronger as a result. And so that's what's happening. And I think uh, another analogy that's kind of fitting in the sense of purpose is um, where it's not always comfortable is I, I like to think of it as a sense of adopting responsibility, right? Mm. When we adopt responsibility for something that that can actually be really central to giving us a sense of meaning and purpose. So a really great example that I think you'll resonate with is uh, with children, right? Children can be one of the things that drive you the most insane and <laughs> maddened that you will ever be. And at the same time, give you the greatest sense of fulfillment and meaning and purpose, you know, for another human being that you're charged with raising. And so it's the responsibility of being, you know, having this human being <laughs> that you hopefully bring into the world to be a, you know, another human being that can contribute positively to what's going on out there. Um, that I think gives us the sense of like, Hey, it's not just about me. It's not just about like being happy and like, Oh, I feel good all the time, but mm -hmm. that actually, you know, there's some difficulty that comes with, right. you know, what that looks like. And weathering it together. And I think that's what is also an important aspect to that of like collaboration. And maybe in prior decades, because, uh, you know, I'm pretty young, <laughs> um, we've gone into work environments where it was need to know information. Um, you know, your manager was just giving you just enough information for you to complete your job. So in some ways it was job security, but also it limited people from expanding and being able to contribute in the best way possible because they could only make decisions based on the information that they knew. And what I loved about how the tech world, especially in the last decade, has democratized uh, the way that we work is that the more people that know information and how your contributions are actually helping hit the bottom line of something really resonates with people saying, hey, I can actually make an impact. I can have influence in what I'm doing. You know, what I'm doing is not just a cog in the wheel. It actually is a spoke in the wheel. Um, and I want to do that more, whether that's selling something or being in the people team or, you know, being uh, an engineer, all of these different parts have to come together and no one is more important than the other. That's the other thing that I think has shifted a lot. And so when we think about well-being, we have to think about the diversity of that ecosystem of how do I support so many people who are doing so many different things, who are in different points of their career. We're talking about five, almost six generations in a workplace. Yeah. Uh, we're talking about people who are parents. We're talking about people who may have disabilities that need accommodations. There's so many different um, visions and aspects to what it means to be a human being showing up to work. 
And so that's that's the challenge, but it's a good challenge to have. That means that we're becoming more inclusive. We're being more thoughtful. Right. And so I think the hard work that's ahead of us really is to figure out how can we continue to find solutions and innovate? And human beings have always been resilient in finding yes. different ways of working and getting better at it. If anything, we're at a tipping point where we could be at the best that we've ever been. Yeah. Period. Why not pursue that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a great, I think that's well said, because I do believe that, you know, if one thing's true is over the course of human history, we found a way to innovate and overcome obstacles and these things that have been put before us. Um, and so I think it's a, actually a really great segue kind of into this research from this Deloitte study that we've been trying to get to. <laughs> <laughs> We're um, getting there. We're getting there. Around well-being. And I think what's really fascinating about it is uh, it they were providing a framework um, unlike any that I've really seen before. It's something that we've talked a lot about around here at Fringe. Um, and so it was really exciting when I came across it because it's like, hey, maybe this is something that's becoming a little bit more widespread. Maybe it catches on a little bit more in terms of how we think about it. And uh, one of the things I thought was really fascinating is they refer to these aspects of well-being um, in a way that they describe these work determinants mm -hmm. of well-being. And so, you know, for those listening, they might be familiar with uh, social determinants of health. So the World Health Organization for some time has had um, a number of uh, metrics, if you will, or um, kind of aspects of what they consider to be the social determinants of health. So, you know, for you uh, as an individual with physical health outcomes, mm -hmm. what are the things that impact that, you know, from a standpoint of environment, socioeconomic status, there's a number of different factors. And so what Deloitte's done here is they've said, well, uh, work is a really important aspect of the human experience. Yeah. And so they're not dismissing sort of work out hand uh, outright as, you know, there's this work-life balance and work is just a bad thing. Inherently, they're actually acknowledging the fact that work is actually a really valuable part of the human experience. And then they go on to describe what are these work determinants? What are these things that they believe to be really core to uh, what drives a positive, you know, work experience or drives well-being within work. And so there's three things that they lay out in this research, which again, we'll post in the show notes here, but um, they describe them as one leadership behavior at all levels of the organization. So from the C-suite all the way down to the lowest people managers, right? Anyone who's responsible for leading or managing people what do those leadership behaviors look like? And so we actually talked about that a little bit last episode, yeah. right? Around, you know, how do leaders impact, you know, what that work experience looks like for their people. Uh, how the organization and jobs are designed is the second aspect of that. And so I think there's some interesting things there to talk about. And then ways of working across organizational levels. And so essentially, how's the organization set up in and of itself. And so again, I think we talked about that a little bit in the last episode, but you know, that could play into some of these aspects around, you know, how are people enabled to work in different projects? Mm -hmm. Perhaps that might be cross-functional, right? Yep. Is there that kind of flexibility across the way the organization's set up that allows for people to experience these things in a different kind of way? Yeah. And I think um, the organizations that are going to rise to the top, that are going to be the leaders within the next five to 10 years are the ones that are focusing on that right now. They're investing in that financially yes. and they're investing in their people 
beyond sometimes what the research will even show. And I think the research is almost not an afterthought, but backing up what people are actually seeing. Yes. When we think about quiet quitting, which I just think is the way that people <laughs> have always resisted work, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to do less or I'm going to just do the amount that I'm paid to do. I'm not going to go above and beyond my job description. I don't see some that as necessarily someone being lazy or someone um, just checking out. I see that also as a failure on the company that I haven't inspired you to find a different way to go about it. Right. Right. That might be, and you said something really important in our last conversation, right? That sometimes certain jobs just have an arc. That's it. Like either you're going to love doing the exact same thing for the next 40 years, which there are certain jobs that have to be there. Uh, I'll even say something, you know, um, as typical as payroll, right? Like you need people who are excited about making sure everyone gets paid on time. Right. I get excited when I get paid on time. <laughs> so you want someone who is comfortable being in a very stable position, but has growth opportunities. Maybe right. it's, hey, you might take on payroll in a different country, or maybe you might learn about something else, but your true function in what you do for the company is being able to make sure that other people can meet their bills and meet their financial commitments. Right. And so when we're thinking about how we structure work, I think well-being has to now be a component that wasn't even a thought process. It was just, mm -hmm. let me take 12 or 13 tasks, throw them all together, slap a title on this, and go get someone to come do this work. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that is um, spot on about what you're saying is the notion uh, that well-being isn't simply about cost-saving measures, mm -hmm. right? And so I think, you know, there's been a sense maybe over the last two decades or so that well-being has been, you know, really just about cost-saving measures. Can we reduce claims costs? Uh, can we, you know, do things that, you know, maybe are like at worst manipulative, you know, for employees to try and save money at best, like maybe in their interests, but, you know, still kind of driven by sort of a profit motive. Um, that, you know, aren't really about the sense of what the article describes as human sustainability. And mm -hmm. I think what we would describe here at Fringe is human flourishing. Right. Like, what are we aiming for? Is it, are we aiming for a bottom line business outcome? Or are we aiming for, you know, a good human outcome for the individual, for communities, for society? Uh, and that's a big difference, right? If we're thinking about promoting the well-being of workers, of the organization, of society, then it doesn't just come down to, you know, hey, can we reduce medical claims by helping people have better heart health? It's a good thing, mm -hmm. right? Of course, everyone, we would want people to have, you know, better health in that way. But at the same time, you know, is that solely the aim or do we just desire for people to flourish, right? And can those things be oriented in such a way that, uh, you know, humans desire for themselves to flourish, that we're not forcing these things upon people, but that meaning and purpose actually comes from the adoption of responsibility, both at the individual level, the community level, the societal level. You tied that together so beautifully. I just <laughs> want to take a, a minute to say that. Um, but also I think multiple things can be true at the same time. So yes. just expounding on what you're saying. There is nothing wrong in saving money because people are catching cancer at stage one and not stage four, right? right? That is super important because A, it, let's be honest, it saves money 
um, on a claims basis, but also we're saving lives. And so one of the things that I've always been an advocate of is benefits equity. And equity to me doesn't mean just having um, the ability to have equal outcomes. It's really making sure that there are facets that we're making sure we address so that way there's people who are having better lives, truly just better lives. Because if we have the resources, if we're A, in the most educated society globally we've ever been as a human race, why aren't we doing better for more people? Mm -hmm. And so when I think about what an employer owes to an employee, what the value proposition is of you working for company A versus company B. I want the conversation to center around, I want your life to be better after working for me. Right. That can be in so many different ways, but well-being has to now be part of the conversation. Yeah, I agree totally. And I think what's interesting and even a challenge in that is uh, it's a two-way street, mm -hmm. right? Because I think, companies do have a responsibility if they are aiming for human flourishing. And that's why we talk about this so much is if they're aiming for the good of human beings in society to do good by their employees, yeah. right? It can't be simply profit-driven motives. And at the same time, individuals have a responsibility as well. Um, so when we talk about meaning and purpose, well, one of the things that's really central to the notion of meaning and purpose is, well, you know, I, as a manager, let's say, I can't define that for you. I can't mm -hmm. tell you what your meaning and purpose should be. And so it actually takes some work on your part as an individual to sit down and actually think about what are the things that are most important in my life? You know, how's the work that I'm doing connected to that? Um, but what's actually really fascinating about that is the research shows that when people actually take time to lay out these value hierarchies, as we might call them, and really say like, hey, what are the things I care most about? You know, what are the values that are most important to me as an individual that it actually brings into their work setting those things that are most important to them. And so all of a sudden, you know, work that maybe seemed really trivial before mm -hmm. can actually take on a different kind of purpose and meaning because all of a sudden it's like, hey, well, I know why I'm going about doing this work. Or maybe this work is a means to an end. Maybe I don't actually love this work in and of itself. It's not always, you know, just total fun and happiness, but there's something more meaningful about the reason that I'm applying myself to this. And because I've taken some time to articulate for myself individually, what those values are, what those things are that I'm motivated by, now all of a sudden I can bring that into my work setting. And as an employer, I can't do that for you right? That takes some work on your part as well. Jason, every job I've ever had has been so fulfilling. I'm always shocked that <laughs> I sure. get a new one, right? Um, if that were true, right, we wouldn't even need leadership books because uh, all managers would just be natural born leaders who could not only be a coach, but also, you know, just get work done through other people, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, that is the ideal stage. Now let's look at reality and see how we can meet somewhere in the middle. I think it's also... Um, being able to say, as a leader, you need to do more for yourself. You need to be full, self-care, do the things that you need to do to be able to pour out to other people. Um, and sometimes we forget that. And so I think managing other people while trying to also manage up, while also trying to contribute is a trifecta of work 
that sometimes we just ignore and just expect people to go from, I was an employee, now I'm managing people, but I have expectations that are way above what it took to be able to be a good employee and a good individual contributor. So I think a well-being program that's really well-tuned will include something that is a focus and maybe even something different for people who manage other people within the organization. And I think that's a really important piece. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what this article kind of puts forward because I think there's some helpful things. And I think there's actually some things that in my mind fall a little bit short um, of what might be useful to us as we think about, you know, maybe a more, uh, consistent framework of well-being, let's say. And so they talk about what they call a well-being direction, right? How do we start to put this into action um, in a more meaningful way? And so one of the ways they say uh, we should be doing this is talking about, you know, shifting from legacy mindsets of well-being. And so I think uh, that's really helpful. The paradigm that they use, I think, is extremely valuable. And so, you know, work is a determinant of well-being. Mm -hmm. Kind of, it's sort of dispelling the sense of work-life balance, which we've talked about a bunch, into, you know, work-life integration, perhaps. But, you know, work being an actual meaningful part of our life experience. And then uh, well-being being a shared responsibility, which is sort of exactly what we were just talking about, that uh, it's one of those both and scenarios, right? It's both the individual's responsibility and the employer's responsibility mm -hmm. to look at well-being and say, hey, we own parts of this, right? It's not one or the other. Um, and then organizational structures, which I do think falls more on the company, right, to help lay out how do we as an organization design the way in which people can go about doing the work that they do and that being a really critical piece to how we do it. Um, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting is um, they talked about the measurement of well-being, mm -hmm. but really didn't, in my view, um, offer anything substantive as it relates to how should we be measuring well-being? And I think you being in the space as long as you have and kind of worked on benefits and well-being initiatives, I, I'm curious to talk about this with you. Like, how can we or how should we be thinking about the measurement of well-being in more effective ways, perhaps? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways that you can um, find metrics that make sense for your organization, but this is a supermarket method that I would recommend. So take what you need, leave what you don't. Um, one is just pure claims experience. So for those who may go, what are you talking about when it comes to claims? Um, when you're looking at your medical information, you get a summary, very high level, about like what are the top things that people are going to the doctor for when they're using your medical insurance. It may not be by name, but maybe for some reason, there's a lot of people at your organization who have back problems. They're sitting around a lot. They're not getting enough exercise. And maybe that's something that you need to do an ergonomic program around. And this is where it goes back to, um, you know, the claims data of like, oh, you're just trying to get me to be a better worker. So I show up right. in my seat every day. Yeah, that's one component of it. But also we want to leave your, your back pain. <laughs> that's helpful. One of the metrics that I actually discovered um, working in leave management was the ratio of people who were going out on leave 
and how many women were coming back to work and how many women were actually being promoted into leadership positions. So when you think about, you know, this dearth of uh, diversity at the t upper echelons of management, sometimes you can trace it back to those levels of well-being, hmm. right? So if I know that I'm going out and, you know, just isolating this to have a baby, but I don't have programs that allow me to bond with my baby, I may need more time when I come back. I don't have any support systems for what I may need when it comes to flexibility. There's a higher chance that I may be leaving the organization. Mm -hmm. So I think one metric of well-being could be following parents. It could be moms, dads, or however you may identify how many people are coming back from leave and how long are they staying? Are they staying for six months? Are they staying for a year? Are they staying for two years? Just a longevity thing. And yeah. then the second um, thing that you can measure is, are these people continuing to rise within the organization? And so when you think about well-being, that actually can lend itself to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging strategies that we're thinking about. And to me, what's beautiful about being able to go into that space is just showing that, like you said, life and work are all integrated. Anytime we try to segment them out, that's where things start to break down because we're trying to see things in a silo. But if we're able to see that by increasing well-being, by making sure that we have programs that support parents or support women or support L people who identify as LGBTQ, that not only helps that employee and the organization and well-being factors, but that also lends itself to increasing you know, diversity and the feeling of inclusion and belonging in your workplace, which also helps your bottom line. Right. <laughs> so it can be a win and a win and a win. Yeah. And I'm not saying these things are all easy, but we have to continuously push ourselves to find ways to do that. Um, one other thing in the study that I found was fascinating was uh, factors that actually can be a detriment to your well-being could be micromanagement, which is a very a reasonable thing, but also undermanagement, that people are looking for more direction right. in how their careers evolve. And I agree with you completely that you have to also want to own your career. No one can tell you exactly what you're going to do or what will fulfill you from a purpose standpoint. But if you're owning your career and there's no one to help guide you, you're yeah. going to lose some footing there too. So I think that's an important component to compound on what you're saying about it's this relationship of both employer and employee coming together to evolve the idea of well-being. Yeah, yeah. And I I mean, I've talked to so many HR leaders and executives and this question of well-being is one that just feels so nebulous. And mm -hmm. it's one that I'm really uh, passionate and excited and kind of motivated to help bring maybe some more clarity to. And I think one of the disconnects is when I talk to HR people, especially there's a lot of head nodding. It's like, yeah, like we totally get it. You know, it all makes perfect sense. Um, but I think there's still a disconnect at the executive level mm. with people running organizations oftentimes that say like, well, these are still qualitative things. Like at the end of the day, they're nice to haves, which we've talked about a little bit. Um, and you know, how much bearing do they really have on getting business done, right? right. And I think uh, you know, what we wanna put forth is, well, it couldn't be more important. Like it literally could not be more important, right? These things that feel qualitative, um, you know, the science itself mm -hmm. is pointing to the fact that, you know, these self-reported measures of so-called qualitative data 
um, are actually really core and valid measures of an employee's experience to the degree that it will impact their satisfaction, their happiness, their productivity. I mean, all of these things that you were talking about around, you know, the sense of uh, inclusion and belonging at an organization. And so I think one of the things that's really missing is connecting the dots between these so-called, you know, qualitative measures and the actual business outcomes, because they are connected. It just might be one or two degrees removed and we're not accustomed to talking about these things Mm -hmm. in a business setting. But I would say in the context of psychologists, for example, they've been talking about these things for over 30 years. I mean, I've been astounded by the papers I've read, which have been a number of them um, up to this point where uh, these studies show like one after another that, I mean, even the simplest things that increase somebody's positive affect, which is, you know, a, a psychological term that just refers to somebody's very basic sense of, you know, happiness at a, a really, um, you know, base level. Right? We're not talking about like mm-hmm. a sense of meaning and purpose. We're just talking about like, oh man, I got a little positive lift from like a gift that I received. Um, the impact that that alone has on somebody's you know productivity within the context of a day is so powerful that I can't imagine. I, I don't understand, I guess, why we're not talking about this, you know, more than we are currently. And I think, um, you know, someone else I think about a lot is Marcus Buckingham and some of the research that he's done around, um, you know, we're extremely poor evaluators of others, but we're extremely good evaluators mm-hmm. of our own experience. That's and right. so our own experience of what is happening in an organization is extremely valid. And we need to take that into consideration, you know, as people that work with people that run organizations that, you know, what people are telling us is going on. We can't just dismiss dismiss it uh, outright that we need to take those things into account as we're thinking about designing the work experience for people. Yeah. So let's just give it to people in three steps, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think everything that you've brought forward, especially from the study, is important for people to know and to think about, but I don't want them to feel powerless as to like, okay, well, you know, I'm a manager here. I may not be an HR. I may be a first-time people leader. I don't even know how to, you know, climb this mountain. Um, So some of the things that I would recommend, and I'd love to hear your thoughts too around this, would be to first... Think, start with yourself. What is your purpose? Like, right. how do you feel fulfilled at work? What is the thing that gets you up out of bed and makes you feel like, not only am I excited about the work that I do here, but I'm excited about what that means and what my next step could look like. Because if you can find that path for yourself at the organization that you're at, then you can start to help other people find that too. And so I think starting with yourself is a great way to get into that. Um, And then talking about just like you said, well-being in the sense of how can I measure it for my people? If I've had someone who's left the organization, do I have access to their exit interview? I actually think we have a lot of the data points already just sitting within disparate systems. And it's time for someone to be able to bring that together. Pull your exit interviews, even pull your, uh, your, your newest people in. Why did you choose to apply to our organization? Why did you choose to accept an offer from our organization? What did I promise you to get you here? And how can I make sure we make good on that promise? I really don't think people wake up and go, I 
just don't want to be a good manager today. I don't want to be a good employer today. <laughs> I don't think that happens. I think, you know, there's things that fall through the gaps. I think there's lack of communication. I think lack of collaboration that leads us yeah. to not fulfilling that. And so the well-being discussion is something that gets us to back into that point of if we are people-centered, if we focus on flourishing people, then we can continue this, honestly, wave of good goodness that actually improves profit. Yeah. I truly, truly believe that. Yeah, I agree. And I think something that you put forward is well said, which is, you know, for those of us that are responsible for helping to lead people in our organizations, um, there's a responsibility to, you know, lead from the front mm -hmm. and not just do as I say, but do as I've done. I mean, the easiest lessons to pass on are those that we've learned ourselves. And so I think as we adopt that responsibility and take on those things ourselves and take responsibility for helping define, you know, our own sense of purpose and meaning, it's going to be a whole lot easier and more powerful and compelling to share that with the people that we work with and lead. So I think that's uh, very well said. And so it's, it's a great place to wrap up this conversation. Already? <laughs> Already yes, I know. Um, and so we're going to continue this theme, I think, uh, you know, well-being and the sense of how that plays into our work experience is really important to us. And we're thinking about that a lot here at Fringe. And so, Cassandra, thank you for joining us. Yeah, this is uh, a joy. These podcast episodes have been great having you a part of the conversation here. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks.